Hello and welcome to the 13th and final episode of Season 7 of The Dark Money Files, in which we shine a light into a murky world. I'm Ray Blake and with me is my co-host, friend and business partner, Graham Barrow. Hello, Graham. Hello, Ray. We are bringing Season 7 of the podcast to a close with our final episode on alternative money laundering systems then, Graham. This is our fourth episode in the series, which was originally going to be a series of two. Um, mm. And originally we were going to do it all in one episode, weren't we? we? Were. we were. Um, but, but, but of the four, this is the one where we go a little bit off-piste, doesn't it? Uh, it is, Ray. And as far as roots go, we've been taking the piste for long enough. Quite so. So let's move off it. Um, <laughs> let's move on. Uh, informal value transfer systems or IVTSs. Uh, we ought to start with some sort of definition. We should. And it has been our way, hasn't it, since we started. Mm. Never assume. Start from the basics. Mm -hmm. Now, who are we going to turn to, Ray, for our definition? Well, there are a number of places we could turn. Uh, we could start with FinCEN, the US Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. On which subject, sorry to go a tangent, it's rather weird that the US should want to enforce financial crimes. You'd, you'd think they'd want to prevent them, wouldn't you? <laughs> I think you're overthinking this, Graham. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I love the idea of taking a tangent from going off piste. <laughs> Um, anyway, FinCEN <laughs> defines IVTS uh, as any system, mechanism or network of people that receives money for the purpose of making the funds or an equivalent value payable to a third party in another geographic location, whether or not in the same form. The transfers generally take place outside of the conventional banking system through non-bank financial institutions, MBFIs we call them, or other business entities whose primary business activity may not be the transmission of money. The IVTS transactions, it continues, occasionally interconnect with formal banking systems, for example, through the use of bank accounts held by the IVTS operator. Okay, there's quite a lot of information there, mm. Ray, um, which I'm sure we'll work through. But there's also a number of different systems which they call out, specifically Hawala, Hundi, Feitien, Furquan, and the black market Peso Exchange. Uh, yeah, a couple of decent Scrabble hands there, Graham. Um, I, think, yeah. I think we we probably need to to work through those one by one, provide a bit of history, bit of context, and maybe a couple of case studies. As ever, Ray, that sounds like a very, very mm. good idea. So shall we start with Hawala? Yes. Now, this is probably one of the best known uh, informal value transfer systems, isn't it? Um, mm. It's commonly but not exclusively used in the Middle East, Africa and the Indian subcontinent. It's been round for more than a thousand years or more, primarily to avoid crime rather than, you know, a consequence of it. I think you'll need to explain that. Right. OK, so like most IVT systems, it's based on trust. Uh, at the most basic level, it needs two brokers called Hawaladars, separated geographically, who have agreed to work together. Let's say one's in Leicester and one's in Bengal. 
Okay, and, and let's say I'm the person in Leicester and I have a family in Bengal who I help mm. to support. I want to send them money, but I don't want mm. to pay large bank charges and I don't trust the formal banking system. Well, you go to your local Hawaladar in Leicester and give him, say, £500. He will tell you his current rate of exchange into rupees, which, if acceptable to you, allows you to complete the deal. The Hawaladar then gives you a password and takes your money. But he doesn't physically send my money to Bengal, does he? No, he doesn't, and that's the point. All he sends to the Bengali Hawaladar is the password, probably via an encrypted text message these days. Yeah, and then I send my password, which is of course the same password, Mm -hmm. to my family in Bengal by the same method, along with details of the Bengali Hawaladar. They walk into the Bengal Hawaladar's premises and give him the password, which, if it matches the one he was sent by his UK counterpart, allows him to pay out the money. And then all of these transactions are recorded usually in a, in a little book. And mm-hmm. every few months, the two Hawaladars settle the outstanding balance in whichever direction is showing a debit. Because there might equally be a requirement to send money from Bengal to the UK, say because the family had decided to send one of their children to the UK for a degree or further education course, and and many different family members are contributing to the fees, or perhaps through entirely unconnected families and connections sharing the same hawalada. Absolutely. And and to go back to what we said initially about avoiding crime, mm. a thousand or so years ago, it meant that that money could move without you having to walk down potentially dangerous roads with it in your pocket. And that was seen as a good thing. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I think the Crusades were financed using this method, at least partially. I believe you are right. And God, that would be an episode all of its own, the Crusades. But oh, no, no, no. It's today. four already, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do so, for now. Right, let's let's move on. Um, What about hundi? Ah, now, okay, so a traditional hundi is closer to a bearer share or another bearer instrument because it's a written promise to pay the bearer a certain sum on a certain day. It's a bit like a £10 note, but but not issued by a central bank. Yeah, a bit like a a limited time coupon as well, I guess, Mm. Uh, which is, uh, and and because it's not written on a central bank, the system relies on trust. But what happens then, Ray, if somebody does break that trust? Uh, Well, clearly there's no recourse to the courts because none of these formats have official legal standing. But what can happen is severe social exclusion, bringing shame on your family name and and, and other social sanctions, which in the societies in which these systems are common is almost certainly a more powerful safeguard than the court could ever be. Mm. Now, of course, sometimes Hawaladars don't want to send their balancing payments through traditional banking either, Mm. which means they often combine Hawala with a form of trade-based money laundering. Uh, How? Well, let's say over a period of six months, the UK Hawaladar now owes his counterpart in Bengal a total of, say, £5,000. And let's say this is not the only source of income or business that the Hawaladar is involved in. Well, I don't imagine it is in most cases. No, no, very commonly they do all sorts of Mm. other business. So so let's assume that he also does a bit of importing of local Bengali goods. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So he imports £15,000 worth of goods, but he's invoiced for £20,000. Oh, now, that's yeah. known in money, trade-based money laundering terms is over-invoicing. Um, mm. So that's what he does. So he gets £15,000 in goods, but pays an invoice for £20,000, which also includes the settlement figure for the Hawala business. Exactly. Now, bear in mind mm. that this is illegal, at least in India, to circumvent the Reserve Bank of India's official exchange rate for rupees. Mm. So it's useful to be able to disguise the transactions within a more acceptable trade invoice. Mm. And presumably you could reverse the flow, by which I mean move money from Bengal to the UK, by under-invoicing a transaction, so that you only paid... 10,000 for 15,000 pounds worth of goods, realizing the difference when you sell them. Exactly. Mm. Shall we move on to Fei Tien or, or flying money, yep. as it's translated, I believe? Mm -hmm. um, now, this one also dates back more than a thousand years, and once again, it was used as a method for avoiding crime because. As we just said, it obviated the need for merchants, and they were primarily tea merchants, mm. to carry large sums of money around with them and risk being robbed. Mm. It meant instead they could arrange for it to be available at their destination ahead of their arrival, hence this expression of flying money. It would fly off ahead of them. It would. And avoid the bandits. Very good. Yeah. Uh, and, and like uh, Hundi, this relied on the issuance of promissory notes or certificates that could be exchanged for the value of the money deposited, but of themselves were presumably worthless. And this was also called chit in some parts of the world. Oh. Um, and, and I gather from your R, uh, it's a word that you, you recognise because it's entered yeah. the English language and it means a voucher or a receipt for money owed. Yeah, it comes from a Hindi word, in fact, chitti, which means pretty much the same thing. And then there's CHOP. Yes, which functions as a promissory note and password all at the same time. You'll need to explain. Well, the CHOP in question is a piece of paper, often a train ticket or a playing card in a former life, uh, which is torn into two pieces. One is given to the payee and the other... Uh, part is sent on to the counterpart broker. The payee sends uh, his or her piece to the recipient who then takes it to the broker. And, and a match, you know, they fit together perfectly, uh, results in the payout of the funds. Interesting. I, I guess the main difference then between Hawala and all of the rest is that Hawala relies entirely on trust, whereas mm. all the others have some sort of written note or record to, to back up the transaction. Very true, Graham. Uh, shall we move on to the black market peso exchange, which sounds well, I, altogether much more modern, doesn't it? <laughs> it it does. It's almost formal, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and I guess of all of the systems, this is possibly the, the most complex to explain. Now, you're not going to let that stop you having a go, are you, Graham? It never has before, and it and won't it, this time either, right? <laughs> Excellent. So so I, I suppose we, we might best start off with the reason why it's become so popular. It originated in Colombia, uh, initially to avoid strict exchange controls, but as the trade in narcotics increased, it was more frequently used by drug gangs to avoid the dollars generated in the US from coming back to the country in which the drugs were either grown or refined. 
Yes, because often, as for example in Mexico, you you can't hold a dollar account as a private citizen, so so pesos are much more used to them. Mm, exactly. Uh, at the simplest of levels, the cartel gives its dollars to a U.S.-based broker, and the broker in, say, Colombia, gives the peso equivalent to the cartel. But where do they get the pesos from to give to the cartel, Ray? Well, that's a good question, Graham. And the answer is that legitimate traders do not always want to pay the official Colombian exchange rate for dollars. So they send the money in the opposite direction. They buy goods in the US with their dollars and sell them to the Colombian traders at a rate of exchange rather better than they could get from the central bank. Netting out the peso-dollar balance sheet and keeping mm. everyone happy. Well, I'm not sure about everyone there, Graham, but uh, <laughs> certainly it works to the advantage of both the cartels and the Colombian importers, yes. And, and no money flowing through the banking system to be subjected to transaction monitoring and all those other rather inconvenient controls. Well, when you put it like that, Graham... Uh, well, quite. Uh, yes. All of these informal value transfer systems bypass the entire control structure, which is why, alongside traditional trade-based money laundering, they're allegedly responsible for a very large percentage of the overall movement of illicit value around the world. Yes, and that reminds me, mm. Ray, we really ought to throw in the mention of a not-so-recent but fascinating research paper by a guy called John Stanovich. I'm a big fan of his, Graham. I, I love that paper. It's got some of the most eccentric examples of trade-based money laundering you're ever likely to see. Exactly. So I thought we might extract a few of our favourites. Oh, just a few? There are so many. I know, but I tell you what, we'll leave our listeners to go and have a look at the paper themselves. And, and to help them, we'll leave a link on the podcast page for them to follow. I think that's a good idea because they'll, they'll never get the spelling. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. So I think we should probably start with a brief explanation of what this paper is actually all about. And it's something you do so well, Ray, so oh, go you. on, carry on. Oh, OK, uh, I will. In the US, they have a thing called the Monthly Merchandise Trade Database, maintained by the Department of Commerce, and which contains all export transactions valued over $2,500 and all import transactions valued at over $1,500. Well, I imagine that's quite a big database then, Ray. Well, at the time the report was produced, it averaged around 10 million or more items a year. Wow. Mm. And, and what information is collected in this database? Now, that's a good question. The database contains information on the nature of the item, the quantity involved, the price of each item, how it entered or left the US, where it entered or left the US, and where it originally came from or ultimately went to in the case of an export. Well, that's pretty comprehensive then, mm. isn't it? And, and can, can just anyone access this information? Not just anyone, Graham, but there are subscription apps out there for commercial ventures and, of course, US government personnel and approved researchers can mine the data as well. OK, well, I think we have a decent picture of the overall database. So mm. what did Mr. Stanovich focus on in particular? There are four main headings in his analysis. Over-invoiced imports, over-invoiced exports, under-invoiced imports and under-invoiced exports. 
Okay, they are pretty much the classic trade-based money laundering typologies. Exactly right. Uh, Shall I pick out my favourite export statistics and I'll leave you to focus on the import side? That's fine with me, Ray. Mm -hmm. Okay, so because this is very much a US-focused paper, it focuses on low-priced exports and high-priced imports, but also looks at anomalous weights of items as well. The standout item for me, price-wise, appears under the heading of abnormally low US export prices. And it's the unit price for a missile and rocket launcher. Okay. Mm. Um, Not your average purchase, and and I'm guessing probably quite high-tech and sophisticated. Uh, Well, I suspect not, Graham, given that the quoted unit price was (laughs) $52.03. (laughs) Um, Are you sure that wasn't missing a zero or two or or three? No, it was just over 52 bucks. Blimey. Mm. That rate, you could start a war for next to nothing. Mm. Um, I I really hope they weren't going somewhere sensitive or or with a reputation for instability. Israel, Graham. Israel? Yes, Graham. I'm going to just... Not comment, actually, on that, I right? think that's um, best. I see the list also singles out abnormally priced exports to what were then called Al-Qaeda watchlist countries. Any standout items there, Ray? Well, I guess the one that really catches your attention is the sale of radioactive elements to Egypt. Oh, um, so to balance out the missile launches they're selling to Israel? I'm not going to go there, Graham. <laughs> okay, I don't blame you, Ray. Um, and what was the unit price of these radioactive isotopes? Uh, a steel at one cent per mega becquerel. Ray, I'm not an atomic physicist. Really, Graham? <laughs> yeah, very funny. Um, but even with my relatively limited knowledge, that mm. sounds like an awful lot of radioactivity for very little money. Uh, as you know, I'm also not an atomic physicist, but I'd have to agree with you. Uh, now, what about your favourite import items? So these will be abnormally high-priced imports, and there are so many to choose from. I am tempted to go for the women's briefs from Venezuela at $50 a unit. <laughs> yeah, I've often said that about you, Graham. Uh, but hold on, though. <laughs> that, that means you could end up buying a pair of pants uh, from Venezuela for pretty much the same price you could sell a missile launcher to Israel? Um, yes. But I'm not going to go for the Venezuelan pants. Okay. I'm actually going to go for the cassette tape player from Denmark. Cassette tape players. Wow. That's a product that's definitely losing market share these days, despite a slight resurgence of interest. I think I know what precipitated that, Ray. Go on. Well, because if you were buying your cassette tape players from Denmark, you'd be paying $17,314.25 per unit for them. (laughs) Really? And Denmark? Denmark, Graham. Uh, Do you think they were using a well-known Danish bank for these transactions? We'll never know now, I think. Mm, Okay. And your favourite anomalous price from a watch list country? Do you know, 
Right, that's not a sentence I would ever have predicted you asking me prior to doing these podcasts. I, I like to. I, I'm always interested in what you've got to say about a range of topics, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a fair point. Um, <laughs> I, I think my favourite anomalous price from a watchless country will be the um, price of raises from Egypt, which apparently cost twenty two dollars eighty nine cents each. You you expect a very very close shave indeed at that price do you know i'm going to avoid all of those close shave jokes uh, who are you and what have you done with graham <laughs> well it's just i think we've already had enough close shaves for one day right <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't help yourself after all then <laughs> no sorry uh, anyway you know, I think that's where we're going to leave things for this episode. And indeed this series. Uh, we're going to take a short break to focus on the forthcoming Dark Money Conference. Tickets still available. Uh, but we will be back in September with Series 8. I'm looking forward to it. Oi, that's my line. Not today it isn't. Bye. Oh, bye. Bye. <laughs>